Well, good morning, everyone. It's so great to be here along with you all. Uh, today, we are going through one of Jesus's parables. So uh, we are currently in the sermon series on the power of prayer. And today, the parable that we are focusing on discusses a key element within prayer, which is a prayer of confession. Nobody left after saying that, so. <laughs> but what the prayer of confession shows is that Jesus is after your heart. And this is a well-known parable, and this is the parable that is found in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. This is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And this is just a reminder that a parable is a story that is used to illustrate a point. And in this parable, we are introduced to two characters in this story. First, we have the Pharisee, and then we have the tax collector. Thank you, Chris. Kind of saw that in the title of the parable. You're welcome. But it's important to open and do a deep dive into the characters and who they are. So in almost every sense in this parable, these characters, these people, are on opposite sides of the spectrum. And it's important to understand that as modern-day Christians, we look at the Pharisees and we see them as awful, legalistic, super rigid, and they hated Jesus. And oftentimes, if you're like me, when you read the word Pharisee, it reads, and you read about the Pharisee's encounter with Jesus, you kind of hear the dramatic orchestra playing in the background, almost like when Darth Vader walks onto the scene in Star Wars. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> so... That's kind of, the, that's kind of the, the theme you get when you see the Pharisees walk onto the scene. And that's from our modern Christian viewpoint. But back when Jesus told the story in this ancient culture and society, the Pharisees, the Pharisees were highly regarded within their society. They were the spiritual elites. They were the religious leaders of their time. And they had laws on top of laws on how to follow the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And they were super strict within their observance of the Jewish law. And to become a Pharisee, to become a religious leader, you had to memorize the entire Torah, which that is a lot of text. And as another example of the Pharisees' devout rituals on the Sabbath, on the day of rest, they had rules of how many steps that you can take on the Sabbath. And that's just an example of one of the many showcases of how strict they were. But they were highly regarded within their Jewish society. And then the next character that we have in the parable is the tax collector. And the tax collector was generally grouped within the sinner's category. Throughout the scripture, we hear it, and you, you see it, and you see uh, Jesus went to go eat with the sinners and the tax collectors. So tax collectors are grouped within the same category as the sinners, right? The sinners are the awful people. They're the outcast of society. They're the morally wrong. They are the moral, morally bankrupt. And you would never want to be seen 
with someone who was a sinner because then people would associate you as being a sinner because you're with them. And identity as a tax collector carries a lot more negative connotations with it than just a sinner. For context, in the ancient world, at this time of the parable, you have the Romans who are occupying Israel. The Romans collected taxes from the Jewish people, and the Jewish people did not like having to pay taxes to the Romans. So the Romans appointed Jewish people to collect taxes on behalf of them, and they would have the Jewish people collect taxes to help fund the Roman Empire. Therefore, tax collectors are seen by the Jewish people as traitors to their own people because they're working with the Romans. And then on top of that, these tax collectors that are mentioned throughout Scripture are often taking money from those taxes for their own personal gain. So they're essentially extorting money from their own people, and they're also taking money for the Romans who are occupying their land. So uh, there's so many negative contexts with, or there's so many negative connotations with the tax collectors, right? And there's so many negatives within this circumstance that double negatives don't equal a positive. (laughs) So there's just so much negative stigma around tax collectors. And so that's why whenever you see sinners and you see tax collectors, they are in such a lower bracket than the sinners as listed within the Bible. So to reiterate, you never want to be seen talking to or associate with a tax collector. So these two characters are on two different sides of a spectrum. And I think that it's important to do that because from our, to go through this because from a modern day context, we, not, we might not be aware of these nuances that the people there at this time would be aware of. So let's read together our Bibles today. So I encourage everyone to open up their Bibles. We'll be going through Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. The text will be on the screen as well. But before we jump into the text, let me just open this up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your word that you revealed to us through your Holy Spirit. Pray that you'd speak to us today through the power of your Holy Spirit. Though this might be a well-known parable to some of us, I pray that you would reveal insights to us today. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, and reveal to us what needs to change within our lives. We love you, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's for Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week 
and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So let's jump into verse 9, where you can see who this parable is intended to reach. It is targeting those who are confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, which we'll talk about in the first point shortly. Then we meet our two characters that we just discussed. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And it was a common Jewish practice for people to go to the temple and pray. You can see about it in Acts 3.1, where Peter and John went to the temple to pray. You can see other examples in the Bible of how this is just a Jewish custom that they had. So looking at the first part of verse 11, it, said, it says that the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. So the Pharisee standing by himself and praying signifies that the Pharisee did not want to be contaminated, associated, or close to anyone who was a robber, evildoer, or like this tax collector. The Pharisee fasts twice a week, gives a tenth of all he gets, and he's signifying that he is going above and beyond what is required by the law. The Pharisee is pointing out all that he has done. Notice that the Pharisee acknowledges God in the first part of his statement, but is not praying to God. But the Pharisee is gloating of all of his good deeds. He thanks God that he's not like other people, but he primarily gloats and boasts of all of his accomplishments rather than a prayer to God. Pharisees never hesitated to point out the sins of others. And you can see Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees, and they're just fascinating interactions to read because Jesus was not too kind to the Pharisees. Jesus was not afraid to speak truth to the Pharisees. And you can see throughout the scripture, within Matthew 23, these are just a few words that Jesus said about the Pharisees and to the Pharisees. He called them blind guides, calls them fools, serpents. He calls them a brood of vipers. He calls them hypocrites. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees. You hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law 
and Pharisees. You hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Wow. Ouch. And I share of what Jesus said about the Pharisees, more so because when we read a story in the Bible, it's important to see the larger picture at hand. Because when we're reading this parable, Jesus is telling this parable to his disciples. And the disciples are already aware of what Jesus thinks of the Pharisees, the self-righteous. The disciples understand that Jesus does not speak too kindly of the Pharisees because of their self-righteousness. And when we look at the story in Luke 18, we can see that the Pharisee is boasting on all that he has done. And he has zero desire to be near anyone who is not as righteous as he. And we move on to the tax collector's response, which is a much different response than the Pharisee. So the tax collector stood at a distance, most likely referring to the distance he stood from the Pharisee because of the tax collector's sinfulness. He also could not raise his eyes to heaven because he knew that he was a sinner. He had a contrite heart and he knew that he stood condemned for his sins. Beating his breast most likely meant remorsefulness and a deep regret for his sin. And the meaning of his actions are summed up by his words by saying to God, Have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax collector knew his heart and he knew his actions. And he ultimately, ultimately he knew where he stood before a holy God totally unworthy before him and in desperate need of God's mercy. The tax collector prayed with a Psalm 51 heart. So Psalm 51 was the prayer that David prayed after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Psalm 51 points to what a humbled, contrite prayer of confession looks like. The tax collector's prayer stands in direct contrast to the Pharisee's prayer. It is the recognition and the acceptance of the sinful state that we are in and the desire to turn from that state. We're not going to read all of Psalm 51, but just the highlights right now. But if you have no idea where to start for a prayer of confession... I would encourage you to read through and pray through Psalm 51. But Psalm 51 starts off with, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. Notice how similar that is to 
the tax collector's prayer. And I also want to point out verse 17 in Psalm 51. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. That is the prayer of confession. That is what God desires, and that is what Jesus desires, is a broken and contrite heart. Jesus is after your heart. God is after your heart and a changing of your heart. If you don't know what the word contrite means, because we don't usually, at least I don't use contrite on a daily basis, but having a contrite heart is to express remorse, to be repentant of sin, and to turn from that sin. Having a contrite heart is the first step in reconciliation with God. Jesus is after your heart because that is where real change happens. That is where the true understanding of where the depth of your sin takes place. That's where we come to the recognition of our depravity. And that is where we come to the recognition that we can't do things on our own. But that's when we pray, God, Have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said that out of these two men, it was the tax collector who was justified before God. It was the tax collector's humbled and contrite heart that justified him before God. It was the tax collector's humbled and contrite heart that justified him before God. Justified means to be declared righteous, to have a right standing with God. The tax collector knew the sinful state that he was in, and then the Pharisee was completely oblivious to the sin that was in his own life. The self-righteous are not justified before God because the works that we do will never justify us before a holy God. The self-righteous are not justified because the works that they do or we do, because our works will not justify us before a holy God. And it is only and solely through the work of Jesus that we are reconciled to God, to be made right before him. Jesus then says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Pride is an awful thing. If you read the book of Proverbs, you'll realize that it is littered with many different verses of how awful pride is. And the Pharisees were filled with pride And they had a lack of humility within their lives. And for us personally, we should always be evaluating ourselves and just praying that God would take away the pride within our hearts and that he would instill a spirit of humility. I think that we can look at the Bible as modern day Christians and say, Pharisee equals bad. But we all wrestle with the fact 
that we all have tendencies to be like Pharisees. We all have the tendencies toward hard-heartedness. It is our original sin nature. It's the flesh with inside of us. We all are born with hard hearts, and we always have to make it a habit of keeping our hearts soft and that praying that God would soften our hearts. Or we can always go back to our hard-hearted habits. And I'll use a personal illustration here. I've been told by those closest to me, including my parents who are sitting up here, who have raised me and my wife, Allison, that I can be a little bit stubborn at times. Would you verify that? Yeah, okay, wonderful. Thank you for verifying that. But I'm not sure if anyone here has been told that. And I hope that our son Zephaniah does not exhibit those same characteristics. But for myself growing up, I would do everything in my power to avoid going to church. I just didn't want to go. And my parents tried to bribe me with the promise of McDonald's after the service. Even the lure of fresh French fries, which is one of my love languages, (laughs) wasn't enough to get me to go to church. But my parents wanted me to come in a relationship with Jesus and and knew how important the church community was. Over time, with my parents' persistence, I joined a community of loving and encouraging believers who were persistent in encouraging me to come back week after week, plug into the youth group that I finally found myself excited to go to church and pursue a relationship with Jesus. And that's why it is so important to have a loving and encouraging church community. It can be such a powerful witness to our world. Right? Just like me. Though you can be raised in a Christian home, you can be raised going to church, and you can attend church your entire life, going to church does not justify you before a holy God. Living in a Christian home does not save you. Listening to Christian music does not save you. Doing charitable acts does not save you. The Pharisees did a lot of charitable acts, which we've learned that does not save you. By growing up in church, going to church your entire life, it could, it, it could almost sometimes turn you into a self-righteous person because you do so many righteous things that you think that that's what saves you. That's why we always need to constantly remind ourselves that it is Jesus who saves through the work that he did on the cross for us. And that when we learned that it was the prayer of confession, that it was the prayer of the contrite heart, the prayer of, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, accepting Christ's sacrifice for your sins and believing in him and trusting in him alone is true salvation. God already knows our sins and our shortcomings. When we confess them to God, we are in full agreement of our shortcomings and our sins. It's not just saying, oh Lord, I did this. Hmm, Okay, let's move on. It is saying like the tax collector, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
It is the repentance of sins. Repentance is the complete turn from your sins and not doing those sins anymore. A prayer of confession is the full agreeance of the wrongfulness of your sin and moving away from that sin with the help of the Holy Spirit and trusting in Christ's sacrifice on the cross, which we'll be celebrating shortly in communion. God already knows the sin on your heart. He already knows the sin in your life. Bring it to him. Turn from your sins and bring it to Jesus. It's the beauty of the Christian faith. Whether you've been a believer in Jesus for 50 seconds or 50 years, we can all pray, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's because Jesus is after your heart. He is after a heart transformation. And when there is a changing of the heart, your life changes. The rest of your life changes. So let's pray as we transition into a time of communion together. Lord, we thank you for your word and how it reveals to us what we must change in our lives. Help break our hearts from what breaks your heart. Have mercy on us, for we have all fallen short and have all sinned against you. Have mercy on us, for we need you, Jesus. We need your saving grace within our lives. And we trust in you for salvation through your work on the cross. Turn us from our sins, whatever those sins might be, pride, arrogance, lusting after things of this world, gossip, not trusting in you. So many things, Lord, you know the depths of our hearts and you know what needs to change in them. Help us turn from those things and help us to look more like you, Jesus. Prepare our hearts and minds as we continue to reflect on the work that you did for us on the cross in communion right now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.